Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air, the official podcast of O'Neill & Associates. I'm Kayan Isaacson. This week, it's 321 Go with Cosmo Macero. Then we have an interview with Congresswoman Catherine Clark. And of course, Two Minutes with Tom. First up, 321 Go. Let's talk about something important. Hello and welcome to 321 Go on OA On Air, our weekly look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. In this installment of 321 Go, could the brutal summer traffic to and from Cape Cod soon be getting better? We'll talk about plans to ease the pain for hundreds of thousands of motorists crossing the Cape Cod Canal each week on the Bourne and Sagamore Bridges. And... Sports commentator Marshall Hook joins us to talk about the Boston Bruins' latest fortunes in the Stanley Cup playoffs, as well as a resurgent Tiger Woods as he prepares for the U.S. Open. Finally, the numbers are in, and it's not really a surprise, Massachusetts spends more than most states to educate public school students. But does all that money really translate to better outcomes? We'll discuss. Joining me here on 321 Go is Kyan Isaacson. Hello. The official voice of OA on air. Cayenne, summer's almost really here. That's what I hear. It's unofficially here. And Memorial Day weekend did really did really well by us. It did. It was, it was beautiful. nice. Yeah. Beautiful. It was exactly so. what I think we needed and really have all deserved after this weather lately. We did. We right? did. Yeah, we love summer here at 3 to one go All right, let's get to it. All right, the Massachusetts Department of Transportation, Cayenne, is proposing adding and or moving several highway ramps, reconfiguring rotaries. Seems like they just did this not that long ago and creating signalized intersections around the Bourne and Sagamore Bridges at the Cape mm-hmm. Cod Canal. We all know that Cape, that Cape traffic, that Cape summertime commute, it can be brutal. Going on Cape, sir, going off, I think, might be worse. That Sunday night slog. It's, oh, it's oh, terrible. It's, it kills you. Yeah. It kills your whole Sunday. And everyone has tried to find the best time to leave, and no one has found it. I, I know. You always go, oh, I'm going to do, do this, I'm going to get broke, I'm going to leave late, I'm going to come home at midnight. Uh, amazingly, about 120,000 vehicles crossed the two bridges on an average summer day. Um, uh, state officials say that these planned changes could knock as much as 15 minutes off the delays on a typical summer Saturday and make the daily commute much faster. Um, I think that's really important, the daily commute in the summer. Um, but the, the summer Saturday is interesting because I, I guess I guess people who are going down for the weekend, they they might be going down on Saturday. I, I, I think they're – I mean, I'm kind of a Friday night. I'm going to the Cape for the weekend. I'm going down Friday night kind of person. But I think that goes back to the idea that more and more people are trying to figure out what's the sweet spot of when to go. Last summer, I drove to Sandwich from an hour away from my hometown. It took me two and a half hours to get there on a Saturday morning. And I had expected not a lot of traffic because it's Saturday. Isn't everybody already here? No. And a lot of uh, weekly Cape rentals don't start until Saturday afternoon. That's true. That's right. Saturday to Saturday is the typical rental. Maria Leva is the president of the Cape Cod Regional Chamber of Commerce who says that... uh, uh, there needs to be quick movement because the numbers are increasing quickly, rapidly. She's right. By, 20, by 2040, the state expects daily traffic to grow 27% in the summer, 
32% during the rest of the year over the bridges. That's a lot in 20 years. That is a lot in 20 years, but I think it's it's indicative of what we're seeing across the state, right? Like, traffic in and getting in and out of the city of Boston has worsened dramatically in the yeah. last, what, one to two years. Um, and then, unfortunately, the infrastructure in our transportation system isn't really a great alternative for people getting to the Cape or getting, not even on the summers, you've got the Cape Flyer, but people from the Cape don't have the option to really come here to work if that's where they live because the commute's too long. Yeah. Now, of course, a, a, a lot of this is tied up in uh, an infrastructure funding bill in Washington, D.C. The president, President Trump, walked out of a meeting. I'm not going to make this about him. Um, who are our guys on this? Bill Keating, the congressman from the district, Senator Ed Markey, they filed legislation recently that would set aside a billion a year for critical emergency evacuation routes. That's the key, including Cape Cod. Because, yeah. of course, well, there's only one way off unless you're getting them, unless you're crossing a canal on a canoe or a boat or something, <laughs> which is dangerous. Yeah, those bridges are about it. Um, and we should just quickly, I, I do want to mention, Massachusetts is not the only state in the country that is struggling with this too. So that mm -hmm. infrastructure bill, we, we need to see that, you know, come come into play, Needs not just happen. here. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Cayenne. All right, up next, we're joined by Marshall Hook from 98.5, the Sports Hub and Channel 7, just in time to comment on the latest Bruins Stanley Cup developments. Marshall, great to have you back on OA on Air. Happy to be here. Thanks for coming over. Thanks for coming over across the street. It's a, it's a long trip I, I've made. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lengthy trek, and I, and I appreciate the effort. All right, so uh, fresh out of Game 2 Stanley Cup Finals, um, tremendous amount of anticipation. I was starting to get a little wobbly when I heard a couple of segments, possibly on a different time slot of 98.5, where people were saying, your, your pick for bands to play at the, at the, at the, at the, uh, at the duck boat parade. And I'm like, uh-oh, here we go. Because it doesn't have to be the team packing its bags. It can just be some guy on the radio talking about a parade. And there you go. But uh, last last evening, because as, as we sit here, game two happened last evening. A big disappointment. Yeah, I mean, but I don't think it was an unexpected disappointment. I think that uh, maybe the radio show hosts you uh, you you reference, but certainly the fans, by virtue of how things went for the Bruins in the Eastern Conference, probably got a fairly a false sense of confidence because. And I give the Bruins all the credit in the world. I mean, if you get to the Stanley Cup final, you've gotten to the Stanley Cup final. Sure. But the path was certainly made easier for them with the elimination of Tampa, with the elimination of Pittsburgh, with the elimination of Washington, and to a lesser extent, the Islanders. And then, you know, on any number of teams on the Western Conference finals or on the Western Conference side. But it set it up so the Bruins' most difficult uh, opponent was the first one they faced in Toronto. And I think Columbus was more difficult than Carolina. So whereas typically you move through the playoffs, your competition gets more difficult at every step. For the Bruins, on the Eastern Conference side, in my opinion, it got easier at every step. And I think that built this this idea in in some fans' mind and some talk show host's mind that this was just going to be a cakewalk once you got to the Stanley Cup Finals. But the St. Louis Blues 
are a better team definitively than the Carolina Hurricanes and probably the Columbus Blue Jackets. And so this was never going to be a cakewalk. And I know that it looked kind of that way in game one. People looked at it and said, well, you know, they scored first because the Bruins were rusty, but yeah, they then shook, it, they shook off the 11 yeah. days. And, and then, and then they rattled off four straight goals and they won their eighth straight game. And this is going to be a cakewalk. Well, last night proved that's not, not at all what's going to happen. Yeah. So from, from a, um, uh, a media, sports media, and news media perspective. Talk about the environment uh, and and, and uh, the fan excitement and what's happening in the city. I, I I've, I've noticed because it's right around the corner that you know the um, the watch parties at City Hall are very exciting, and that's certainly made for TV kind of stuff. But you know, compare the level of intensity we're seeing now around this, uh, uh, the excitement around the Bruins. Um, and, and, and say what we see, oh, I don't know, kind of regularly with the New England Patriots uh, and, and more and, and recently with the, with the Red Sox. Well, I, I think the Bruins fans are a little bit different. Uh, you know, it's often hockey is considered the fourth sport. And even here in Boston, I think people see the Bruins sometimes as the fourth team. And that may or may not be true. I mean, I'm not going to dive into the ratings to see exactly how many people are watching. But regardless of whether or not it's true by the numbers, I think what may be true is even if they have the fewest number of fans, those fans have an intensity that the other teams do not. Um, And maybe with the Patriots, it's just by virtue of the fact that they do it every single year, right? They're always there. And the Red Sox have been more successful of late. But I think that the Bruins fans, when given the opportunity to celebrate the team this way, Boy, do they turn out. And that's why you have these watch parties. And that's why you see Bruins jerseys all over the place. And I think you see it with the Patriots as well. But it's so commonplace at this point that people don't get as amped up for it as they would for the Bruins. And so whether or not the total number of fans is the same, certainly the intensity for Bruins fans, I think, is bigger uh, and, and therefore more visible uh, on a when when the bees get into a position like this. Sure. We're talking to Marshall Hook, 98.5, the Sports Hub, and Channel 7. Um, hey, I felt like the – I'm a, I love all the winning we've experienced in, in New England and, and, and particularly in Boston over the past decade plus um, uh, or, or more. Yeah, it's coming up 20, 18 years 18 if you go years, back to yeah, 2001. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, but I, I got a kick out of this because I, I thought it was sort of the ultimate, you know – Embarrassment of Rich's, Rich's spoiled fan entitled entitled thing where people were saying, oh, the Celtics blew it. <laughs> they ruined our chance to hold concurrently all four major titles. The Boston Slam. <laughs> the Celtics ruined the Boston Slam. The Boston Slam. slam. Uh, I mean, here's the thing. I think that it speaks definitely to the success that this town has had, that the Celtics right now are sitting back seen as a, you know, enormous failure because all they did was make it to the second round of the playoffs. When you could go to cities all around the country and say, all right, I know that your teams don't really make the playoffs regularly, but we'll take your NBA team and we'll get them to the second round of the playoffs. And they go, oh, yeah, cool, cool. That sounds great. And here, that team is seen as a a dumpster fire of a failure. Now, I think that there's more than just how far they got into the playoffs that the Celtics right now are seen as a failure. But even absent that, even if they were a cohesive, you know, team right now, I still think that their second round exit and the way it came, they won one game and then effectively got swept after that. 
I think that people would definitely look at them as a failure at this point. But, you know, it was close. It was that taste that that ultimately you could have had that thing and it was right there uh, and the Celtics ruined it. I mean, it was never going to happen. They were never going to be Golden State no, ma- no matter what. No. But still, for it to be killed, maybe the dream to be killed as quickly <laughs> as it was made it more painful. I got to hit with just one, as we close up, one one golf question as we come uh, approach the uh, the U.S. Open. Uh, just like Ken Jennings, the original Jeopardy superstar, is rooting for his records to be broken, looks like Jack Nicholas is at least acknowledging that, yeah, you know what, Tiger might make a run of those 18 majors, and, and it feels like he kind of wants to see that happen, or, or, or is at least that's the way you're, that's what you're supposed to say. What are your thoughts on that? What are your thoughts on Tiger, and is this a resurgence, or was it an anomaly? I mean, I think it's somewhere in between those two things because for him to ever get back to the level that he was, I don't think it's possible. I mean, I don't think it's possible for anyone to exist at that level. It was so, you know, crazy what he did. He was on pace to break Jack Nicklaus's record. Who knows how many years in advance that Jack Nicklaus said it before he, he got off track. His winning a major, though, certainly puts him back into the conversation and back into contention. But maybe it just puts him back into contention as a mortal, really, really good world-class golfer rather than the Tiger-level world-class golfer that he was. And, you know, who knows? Maybe Jack Nicklaus wants that record to be broken. Maybe he doesn't. But certainly he's bright enough to know that the thing he should say is, of course I want to see that record broken. It's great for the game of golf. And it is great for the game of golf. And maybe he does have that kind of ulterior motive to the whole thing because I think golf is better off when Tiger's involved. Because right now, if it's not Tiger, there are all these young guys who all kind of look the same. They all kind of sound the same. They're all very businesslike in the way they approach the game, which is good in terms of their making money and their winning tournaments. But it's kind of, and I'll just dive to yet a different sport, you know, one of baseball's problem right now is all of its superstars, they're, the Mike Trouts, they're kind of vanilla. There's not a lot sure. of excitement. There's not a lot of personality. And it's, I think, hard to bring in new fans or even engage existing fans if your biggest stars, eh, or bleh. Tiger is definitely not blah. So if he's out there and he's competing week in and week out, that brings in the golf fans who are, you know, kind of on the edge. And they'll say, oh, well, if Tiger's in, I'll watch and it's a great take. I, I and as someone who enjoyed his dominance, I actually think it's it's in a way it's it's more fun with the mortal tiger, with the flawed tiger, who um, you know has the credible ability still to win a major, but it's not just a lock. It's going to be a, it's going to be an uphill struggle every time. And I think that's that makes it more. Exciting. Yeah, well, remember if you were doing golf pools back in the day, you weren't allowed to pick tiger. It's like it was a, it was a tiger-free pool. You could pick anybody. Yeah. No, you can't pick, you can't tiger. pick tiger. That's no fun for yeah. anybody. So right. I think you can pick Tiger now. I think you can. All right, we love him on sports here at OA On Air. Marshall Hook, thanks again for coming in. Anytime. Awesome. All right, Kyan, let's talk about education, particularly education spending. New figures from the U.S. Census Bureau. Uh, this doesn't surprise me. Massachusetts is near the top, not at the top, but near the top, uh, in spending per pupil uh, in public education. I, I think we're better than just about all except eight states. 
or something like that, or we rank eighth. Um, numbers range as low as 7,000 per pupil in Utah. Um, they're making that work somehow. Uh, as high as 23,000 in New York. Right now in Massachusetts, based on the survey, based on the census figures, uh, pegged, I guess, to 2017. The projections are pegged to 2017. About 16,000. 197 per pupil a year. That's the eighth highest in the country, 33% above the national average. Is it working, Cayenne? That's the question, right? I mean, what's Depends on where you live. It depends on where you live. Um, and it, we should note, Massachusetts is still looking at spending more, too. I mean, that it's not something that um, the administration or the legislature has really felt that we have capped out at, despite the fact that we are the eighth highest in the country. Um, having a commitment to public education is certainly a great indicator of a strong state. It helped us re, uh, stay high in the rankings on the U.S. News and World Report. We recently were eight, I think, this yeah. year. We were yeah. number one a couple of years ago. But a big part of that was education yeah. versus 44 in infrastructure. Harking back to our last... Speaking of, yeah, the infrastructure. Our last comment. But, um, you know, this one of the things when I was thinking about this was the recent series in the Globe about valedictorians, right, who are going on and not going to medical school or wherever it may be and not becoming always the success that they thought they might be. Or that they should be. Yeah, yeah. so I think, I personally, I think the, the question still hangs out there. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be committing the spending because yeah. I, you know, we've got to I, I live in one of the communities where there's this very strong connection that is drawn by parents and education advocates and the schools between directly between spending and and outcomes and and the you schools have a great school district and the schools it's a good district but it's not that simple and it's not that obvious now I don't want to sound like a globalist or anything but the World Bank says that while there is a strong rationale for public investment in education. The, re the relationship between spending and learning outcomes is often weak. And, and I think that that's something that we just kind of gloss over, uh, especially if you're in a community where you're spending a lot of money and, and you're like, gee, our test scores used to be here and now they're down there and what's going on? So, Well, I th it's also how we, you know, those test scores are not always indicative of it's yeah, that's you a, know, that's, that's a whole, a whole other conversation that's a whole other that would take way more time than we have. Um, conversely, Northwest University did a study in 2018 that said multi-state studies find a strong link between spending and outcomes, um, indicating that ma money does matter. So I think the verdict is still out. Either way, I think we should absolutely be supporting our, <laughs> our kids and, and putting money behind them. So let's Indeed. keep it up, Massachusetts. Last point, researchers who did this work uh, said that the exact context in which increased school spending would most likely improve student outcomes remains an open question. That's called a CYA, <laughs> <laughs> cover your blank. But yeah, okay, they know that spending overall is a good thing for public education. They're just not really exactly sure what the why? formula is or why or what or, or spending on what. But let's keep doing it. But let's keep doing it. All right, Cayenne, thanks again. Thanks. All right, that's going to do it for this week's edition of 321GO. Our program is recorded live in Studio 10A, just off the historic Tip O'Neill Room at our building in the heart of Government Center, Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Macero.
That's it for 321 Go. Up next, our own Ben Josephson interviews Congresswoman Catherine Clark. Hi, this is Ben Josephson from O'Neill and Associates, and today we are delighted to be joined by Congresswoman Catherine Clark from the Fifth District of Massachusetts, uh, now in her third full term in Congress, uh, having won a special election to the House in 2013. She previously served her community of Melrose in the Massachusetts State House and State Senate. Uh, and following the 2018 elections, Congresswoman Clark was elected vice chair of the House of Representatives Democratic Caucus, placing her number six in the leadership in the House. So welcome. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me, Ben. But you did forget to mention I started a Melrose School Committee, which I think is still the toughest job in politics. No, I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned <laughs> that because it's, it, it's going to lead to something I wanted to bring up a little later. Um, but, but regarding uh, your election to vice chair of the caucus, I think people sort of broadly understand the significance of being in House leadership, but could you just speak a little bit about some of the sort of specific roles and responsibilities that a, that a caucus chair, caucus vice chair would have? So the caucus is the place where we convene as all the Democrats and uh, try and pull together to set our priorities and our policy agenda. So it is wonderful to need a far bigger room for our caucus meetings than we did uh, prior to the midterm elections. And to have the ability to tap the diverse talent that we have in our caucus, um, they are diverse in their um, ideologies and geography, um, and we have men, women, um, we have our first Native American women serving, first uh, Muslim women serving. It is just a, a caucus of firsts, and it brings a great strength to have a caucus that reflects what the American people look like and it is you know, our job uh, to make sure that people are informed, that we're listening to them, and that we are coming together around a shared agenda that reflect the democratic values. And, and as, as part of that, you, you do have such a diverse caucus um, for all of the reasons that you, you've just described. How do you sort of week to week reconcile the sort of energy that's felt perhaps more on the left, more in the grassroots, left-leaning grassroots, um, and some of the more moderate Democrats from some of the more swing districts throughout the country, and some of the kind of natural tension that occurs within the caucus as a result of, you know, some differences of opinion on, on certain issues. You know, my goal is not to get uniform agreement, but to reach consensus and make sure that we are developing an understanding of the different perspectives in our caucus and tapping them because they all represent important constituencies to Democrats across the country. And how are we going to incorporate those different perspectives and experiences into our agenda so that we can show the American people that when you put Democrats in charge, we govern for them. And that is a shared value across the caucus. And so pulling those threads together is not always easy, but it is great work. And it is a great privilege to, to be able to do it, to be able to get to work with the members, uh, to help align our, our policy priorities, and 
although it's been uh, overshadowed by uh, the latest, latest statement or outrage from President Trump, I'm very proud of the work that we've been able to do around uh, expanding and protecting people's health care. Uh, two bills that will really put in place common sense anti-gun violence policies, uh, being able to put forward and finally pass the Paycheck Fairness Act that will make sure that women are paid equally for equal work. Um, we are, will continue to push on reducing the cost of prescription drugs, making sure that we have a robust infrastructure plan uh, that will pass the House and we hope will be taken up by the Senate. Um, but we're so proud of that work, but we also have to deal with a Senate and uh, Mitch McConnell, who has self-named himself uh, the Grim Reaper of legislation. And so all these forces, you know, we work as a caucus to, to uh, really work on our messaging to let the American people know we're there, we see them, we see the concerns their families have, and we are passing the bills that will help them. And we need to keep the pressure on the Senate and the White House to uh, enact the, what the American people so clearly told us in the midterms they wanted us to do. And you played such a significant role in, in electing many of your current colleagues, many first-time office holders um, throughout. Uh, tell me a little more about uh, sort of two things. One, some of the work that you're doing to continue that process in 2020 to secure the reelection for some of those members in, in some of those swing districts and also looking ahead to the next class of, of potential freshmen throughout the country. Um, and as you sort of look at, you, you talked about your own background sort of maybe would be considered a little more sort of a traditional escalation from local yeah. to state office to, to serving in Congress. So many of your colleagues who are first time office holders have such sort of different and unique backgrounds, and that's a strength in and of itself. And how do those, you know, looking at your own experience and looking at the experiences of some of the people that you've worked hard to recruit, um, how, how do you reconcile those kind of two things? Yeah, well, I often say that the very best thing, maybe the only good thing that this president has done for me was help me in my recruitment efforts. Um, his presidency got people off the sidelines and involved in politics in ways they had never imagined uh, for their own lives and careers. And we were very fortunate that incredible, you know, veterans, teachers, doctors, um, scientists came forward and said, this is my time. Uh, I want to be able to help my country. I want to be able to promote those issues that are talked about around my kitchen table and the kitchen tables of my neighbors and make sure that those policies are back on the front burner and that we're doing everything we can to hold this president accountable. And uh, as co-chair of recruitment and the Red to Blue program, I got to travel the country, work with these candidates, and it was just so exciting. And I, I'm still not really over it when I look around uh, the House of Representatives and I see them there as members of Congress. I watch the video clips of their questioning in committee. Um, I hear how they're contributing with the bills they're putting forward and the ideas that they are being champions for. 
And so it is um, using my experience uh, coming in a more traditional uh, path than some of these other candidates. I think once you get to Congress, it's all a first time for all of us. And uh, I just hope to be able to continue the relationships that I uh, developed during the midterms now that they're members. Uh, we are planning a, a rollout of a program where we're going to be sending members to different districts to talk about um, different topics and policies and expertise they have, and also to be listening. Some of the members that we uh, elected are from places like Kansas and Oklahoma. Um, where they haven't seen Democrats in a long time. And sometimes the best thing we can do is show up and listen to what people are talking about, what's on their minds, and help understand that Democrats are, uh, are there for them, uh, no matter who they voted for in the midterms, that it really is about promoting opportunity and uh, a fair shot for families um, throughout the country. So we're excited about that work. I think that if we give our members um, the bills that we're passing, that they're able to go home and point to real achievements for families at home, and if the Senate won't pass them, that's gonna be part of the campaign cycle in 2020. But we are developing uh, you know, a portfolio of bills that is everything we talked about in the midterms and making sure that we get them passed and helping those new members communicate those successes back uh, to their folks at home. And, and I know one of the things that actually just, and you mentioned a whole series of, of legislation around gun safety and workplace yeah. protections that you've been working on throughout your time in Congress. But just today, um, there was another piece of legislation I know you want to talk about uh, around further protections in the workplace. Time's up. Can you talk, talk a little bit about uh, how this came together and, and what you're seeking to achieve? Sure, this is a bill that we're doing with, um, with Patty Murray in the Senate, and it is really putting together the first comprehensive piece of workplace protections uh, that came to light in the, you know, the Me Too movement. Um, but we need to address it concretely. And we have had so many people in this country come forward, share their stories. And this piece of legislation is meant to back that up. And we want to let business know that we understand that many small businesses that don't have HR departments, we want to be able to work with them, provide them with resources and materials so they can have policies that protect workers. And we think that will ultimately help with recruitment and retaining a talented workforce for them. So we see this as a partnership with the business community um, and a, a great place to show, especially women, but really everyone in uh, the workforce that Everyone has the right to a job with dignity where they can show up and be respected and compensated fairly for the work that they deliver and do. And that's the fundamental of this bill and the reception uh, and the partnerships that we're getting have been wonderful and uh, very proud to be doing it also with Ayanna Presley. Uh, it's one of our right. lead co-sponsors uh, from Massachusetts as well as Lori Trahan. 
and uh, it's a great chance for the women of the Massachusetts delegation to uh, to get to work together. Fantastic, and and just to bring it back to the sort of business community, I mentioned the outset. Um, you represent the fifth congressional district, and along with your sort of national profile on these issues, you are hyper focused on your district day to day as well. And it's a, a district that, correct me here, that's essentially. 495 north from the Mass Pike and then verging a little bit to the east and communities just north of the city of Austin. So when I think of that part of the geography of Massachusetts, there's a, a very vibrant economy up and down that that quarter in particular um, yeah. and certainly into to Cambridge with some of the you know most exciting companies we have uh, here in the country, if not the world. Um, and so just anything more about your district uh, and it's, some of the things that you're working yeah. on? Uh, well, you're absolutely right, Ben. It is really the center of uh, innovation, and it is an ecosystem that we're so lucky to have these incredible um, institutions of higher learning that attract um, uh, incredible uh, biotech um and and other innovative companies that are are able to provide robust jobs and you know i am often just so amazed when i pull into a a office park in waltham or lexington or in woburn and and you open the door and there is just world-class science and innovation going on and people are coming here for our manpower and for that relationship. So how we keep that ecosystem supported is not only critical for patients around the globe who are facing a diagnosis of a rare disease or you know, looking for the new renewable energy source that we are gonna be able to rely on, but also to keeping the great jobs here for the families in the fifth district and in the Commonwealth. So it's a great partnership and, uh, and I feel, I, well, I know I have the best district in the country. Fantastic, well, that's a great place to leave it. Thank you again for being here. Um, welcome back anytime uh, to OA On Air. Thank you so much, Ben. Thank you so much to Congresswoman Clark for joining us here in the studio. Up next, Two Minutes with Tom. Hi, Cayenne. Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm good. How are you? This is our 49th edition. 49th. 49th. Yeah. Can you believe it? it seems like yesterday. We're still here. <laughs> still chatting. Two minutes with Tom. Still chatting. Two minutes with Tom. Ah, okay. Well, it's good to talk to you. You too. We missed Memorial Day. We did. We had this big Quincy takeover last week, so we right. got a little distracted, and we didn't get a chance to talk about Memorial Day, which is obviously an incredibly important holiday. Uh, so many people look at it as the unofficial kickoff of summer. Uh, we were blessed to have some good weather this past weekend, but that is not what Memorial Day is all about. Um, and in that light, uh, Mayor Walsh made an announcement on Memorial Day that more than 1,000 homeless veterans um, have been housed since the implementation of his anti-homelessness plan five years ago, uh, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, it's 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 even more impressive. It's um, it, it's over five years since he's become the mayor of the city that he made a commitment to house homeless veterans, and uh, it's it's without any modifications or any prevention of anybody who might have an illness, uh, who might be on drugs, 
who might have a sobriety problem. These are people who are in need of shelter, and in a humane fashion, this city has a program to give shelter to homeless veterans and, and frankly, homeless people, mm-hmm. and it's been terrific. And he made that announcement, I know, over Memorial Day. Yeah. So kudos to him and a feather on his cap for, for doing absolutely the right thing. Yeah, and especially, so we work with the Coalition for Homeless Individuals, uh, which represents about 40 organizations throughout the state. Um, and for homeless individuals, the number has gone up. Uh, so it's, it's even more impressive that that number for chronic chronically homeless veterans is going down while yeah. statewide our numbers are unfortunately still going up. Yeah, the, the, the numbers, the need to take care of, you know, unsheltered people and the need to feed people, even in this great economy that we're all enjoying or trying to enjoy, um, you know, there's there's a need to take care of people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and people who frankly, because things have passed them by or they haven't been as fortunate as, as you or me, um, they need help and they need a helping hand. And so, you know, the mayor has done a great job, but I think people don't realize that there are as many as twenty to 25,000 homeless in the state of Massachusetts uh, every day. Most of those people get shelter at night. Um, I'd say a very small, I think it's 4% of the, of the, of the 20,000 don't get shelter at night. But uh, even so, there's a lot of work to do, just a ton of work to do, because the need grows, it doesn't diminish. No, and again, to your point, our economy is booming. So people sort of normally expect that homelessness would go down. and um, But because of a number of issues, I think a lot of people pointing to the opioid yeah. crisis as, as one of them, um, which affects everyone, uh, veterans included. It affects so. everyone. You know, there are, there are mentally challenged folks, there are physically challenged people that are, that are chronically uh, unsheltered and homeless, and they, they need to be taken care of as well. So the number is large, but manageable. Uh, the, lump, the number is large, but if treated humanely, it's manageable and, and people can take care of it. Um, the need, and it was right for Mayor Walsh, Marty Walsh, to kind of point out that need and the fact that uh, you know the, those in, in chronic need, especially the veterans uh, during Memorial Day were recognized, paid attention to, mm-hmm. and uh, had a program developed for them just in housing alone. and. Uh, he, he, he deserves some congratulations for it. Boston's a, a great city, and Massachusetts actually is uh, the one of the best, if not the best, states to be a veteran. And there's so many great uh, yeah, programs and services. Right. So, right. uh, Well, thank you, Tom. Terrific. Thanks, Cayenne. Bye-bye. That's it for this week's episode of OA on Air. Now don't forget to subscribe, whether it's on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever your favorite listening platform is. You can also check us out on our own O'Neill & Associates website. Talk to you next week.